Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Rodeo Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books and subsequently each of our careers went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Uh, my tattoo artist today, he's a massive introvert. He was telling me how during lockdown, he literally locked himself in the shed in his garden for seven months and just painted. And he was so happy. And his girlfriend is like, you should go outside and like chuck in your friends. Not everyone's like you, happy in a shed. <laughs> I can relate to your tattoo artist. I'm like, yeah, my, my people right there. I never see my people because we don't want to see each other or anybody else for that matter. So, because we're introverts. <laughs> Right, and on that note, uh, welcome to the Publishing Rodeo, the podcast where for this week we don't make Scott cry because he is notably absent. Uh, Scott is officially on paternity leave for at least one week. We will give him some respite. But I've got with me today R.R. Verdi. Should I just call you Ronnie on air? Is that okay? Because R.R. Verdi makes me think I should be saying R.R. Tolkien. J.R. Verdi. Uh, yeah, and also with me is the confusingly named Wayne Santos. Confusing because he's... I mean, I was surprised to find out eventually after we got to know each other that you were a filipino canadian uh and then learned about the whole colonialism with names thing which was a whole fun topic <laughs> yeah yeah thank you spanish overlords Woo! yeah do you want to start and kind of talk about your journey a little bit ronnie because the thing i was kind of looking at today is the fact that everyone who gets published is like a statistical outlier i mean there's no such thing as a typical publishing journey. This is the thing that, that always amazes me. You talk to every single person and it's just, it's so incredibly different. Both of you have stories that I would have said that doesn't happen. Or maybe in Wayne's case, shouldn't have happened. Tears. Laughing tears. Anyway, let's let's go because I love Ronnie's story. Yeah, go for it, Ronnie. I guess I'll probably start with like an anecdote of, I was very fortunate starting out that I was going to certain seminars uh, run by traditional authors even though I was indie at the time. And one of the things I heard was publishing is like the opposite of Hollywood where it's always no until someone says yes. Like it's really hard to get in. And every time someone gets in, they find a way to close that door, like how that person got in. And there's like a new way to get in. So my journey is I started self-publishing in about 2013. I missed the, the gold rush in 2012, where if you put a book out, there was a pretty good chance you would just be a supernova rock star. And I kept self-publishing for many years, quietly just building my fan base, learning marketing, until one of my stories, a novelette I wrote with a good friend of mine, Yudhanjaya Wijaratne, who's a Sri Lankan author, was up for the Nebulas in 2019. And we actually went to the Nebula convention um, with the hope of hopefully maybe bumping into an agent, finding a way to start going hybrid. And uh, I don't know if I should say this publicly. Okay, well, this is legal in California. Another author friend of mine who's very prominent and well-known now brought uh, special chocolates down there that I didn't know contained a special <laughs> ingredient. And he gifted me some. And I ate a great deal one day during the Nebulous convention. And I was stoned out of my mind the day agents started talking to me. Most of them were interested in a project of mine that Audible was really interested in at the time, which uh, is the first binding now, Tales of Tremaine. 
which was originally being written to be a serialized kind of picaresque about a traveling storyteller. And I talked to two agents while I was like stoned and they just instantly shot me down based on the projected word count until I met who'd become my future agent, Joshua Bilmish, um, who represents like Brandon Sanderson, Charlene Harris, Simon R. Green. And his first words to me after he parted this crowd of other agents just walking through them, dressed, by the way, like Eddie Murphy from the 80s. He was like in a completely <laughs> bright red suit with red shirt, red um, shoes. He doesn't know I thought this. I don't. I hope he doesn't listen to this, but I thought he was a pimp. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. I was, I was, I was high and I didn't know that because I didn't realize that's what the chocolate was. Um, I was like, oh, a friend brought me chocolate. And this dude comes out of a crowd in all red. Nobody dresses in all red. But he introduced himself very, very nicely. I, I kind of shot Joshua down saying like, look, man, I don't think I've got the book for you because he was, I don't know why he was curious about me. Someone else must have talked to him about me. And I was like, dude, it's going to be like 350K. I've been writing for 10 years. And most of my books always come in within 10,000 words of the word count I estimate. Like I've just, it's just a practice thing by now. And his first words were, well, I published Stormlight. So I could probably get that published. And I was like, oh, okay. And he asked me to submit both the um, first few chapters of that as well as some short stories. I learned later that Joshua, for some clients, I guess, judges you by your short stories. And so I did that. And most of the year went by and Joshua didn't get back to me. Um, and I was at a different convention um, where I was guesting. And another editor friend of mine took me to lunch with who would become my editor at Tor. And I didn't know that at first. And we just started geeking out about Wheel of Time uh, storytelling. Uh, I'm a huge comparative mythology nerd, which people who follow me on Twitter know. Um, and I was talking about the comparative nature of how a lot of fantasy DNA is built from Proto-Indo-European stories. Like there's so much of like the same beats and archetypes and tropes that people don't know about. It's just all the same story. And this guy I didn't know was an editor then just loved it. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, Hey, so this story you're working on, like the one that Audible's interested in, can you send me a copy? And I was like, uh, like why? And he's like, well, I work at Tor. He's like, I'd love to read this. And I was like, well, I don't have an agent right now. And his words were like, if I like this, you can go pick your agent. About a month and a half go by. We're looking at November. And he calls me back. Uh, this is Christopher Morgan, by the way. And he's like, hey, so that story you sent us, don't sell this to Audible. Tor wants to buy the series. And I was like, what? And then he's like, yeah, um, I, I talked to the president. She really likes it. We really like what you're doing. Talk you talked to me about like what your plan is for the whole series. It's like, we want to buy the first three books. And I was like, uh, okay. And he's like, yeah, go go pick an agent, get back to us. So I, I emailed Joshua, like, this is what's going on. And he was very blunt. And I haven't told this story publicly, this this part. Um, you guys know this, but uh, Joshua admitted he was ghosting me because <laughs> he didn't like my short story. He actually <laughs> hadn't read the sample of the first binding. Wow. At least he was honest. He was honest. Yeah. Yeah, he was. And that's kind of why I stuck with him. I was like, okay, he's honest. Like, I appreciate that. A week later, he I guess he got in touch with people at Tor to verify that the deal was legit. And he also read the sample of the first binding. He's like, you know, I hate stories that start in taverns except yours. I was like, thanks. He's like, yeah, I, I can see a future for this. Like, let's try to get all the books you want to do going. He's like, oh, he sent me a letter of representation that actually arrived during the Christmas holidays of 2019. I signed. And then he told me I wouldn't probably see a contract from Tor until early spring because publishing gets really slow after Christmas and getting back together. And in early spring, we had the contract for the first three books of the series from Tor. And a few months later, the UK, um, we had a bidding war between two uh, publishers. And uh, we, we ended up with Golanx over there. I think that's how you say it, right? Golanx. Nobody knows how to say it. I say it Golanx with a flourish. But I've heard Golanx. 
from you. The Z, the Z is a C-H-E sign. It's Golanchi. It's Italian. No, I'm going to get in so much trouble for that. <laughs> Why not? So, I've heard some people say Golanzans, which is just adding in vowels for fun, wow. I guess. Yeah, I, um, I just go with Golans. That's that's the way it is in my if, head. If so. you work for this publisher, I'm so sorry. Please do write in and tell us how to say your, your publishing name correctly, because we don't know. <laughs> the big G in the UK. <laughs> Yeah, just just act like it's an audio pronunciation guide that you know, we're gonna need. <laughs> but yeah, that that's how I ended up here. It was yeah. it was weird. It was seven years of indie, and I never tried to go traditional door or query because my favorite genre at the time was contemporary and urban fantasy. And I bumped into a very prominent editor in 2016, and I actually wanted to query her, and she flat out said, "No one's buying urban fantasy or contemporary unless your last name is Butcher, Briggs, Cadre, or Hearn." So that kind of shot down any hope of going traditional at the time anyway. So I was just like, well, screw it. I guess I'm indie until this whole freaky story happened. I mean, just, just to recap for listeners, you sold your debut trad novel, unfinished, 350,000 yeah. words. Yeah. Without an agent. Right. See, if you told me this story two years ago, I would have said... <laughs> Jesus, that sounds so bad and douchey. Oh my it doesn't God. sound douchey, but l- listen, if you told me, if someone had been like, two years ago, someone had been like, hey, do you think I could sell my 350,000 word, th- 350, word epic fantasy novel without an agent to tour? I would have been like, that doesn't ever happen. That just does not happen. But... Every time I say something like that, I meet someone else who has who's, who's had a crazy journey. But yeah, I think so. I'm gonna, if that's all right, I'm gonna ask Wayne to share his long publication story because Wayne is like my icon for perseverance in trad. With feel free to take off, Wayne. <laughs> okay, I I can 100% confirm that you are absolutely correct, and that publishers usually won't buy novels that big because they totally didn't with me. All right, so first things first. Generation X, which actually does, at this time and place, put me into my 50s now, like early 50s. So yeah, I actually decided that I wanted to write like way back in the 90s, like, you know, the, the mid-90s. So I started writing stuff and, you know, like trying to get better. I finally wrote my first novel and finished it in like 96 or 97 or something like that. And I think that was about like 380,000 words at the time. Email and email creating still wasn't really a thing back then, so I was still doing it the old-fashioned way, just sending out letters to the agents one by one. And I was living and working in Singapore at the time, so I was like, hey, I have this Filipino-Canadian guy that's not even in Canada or the Philippines right now. I'm working in Singapore, and I got this huge novel, and you want to take a look at it. And actually, I got a bite, and an agent asked to look at it, and he offered to represent me based on that 380,000-word book. And I was like, oh my god, I got an agent on like you know practically my first try, and I did it before I'm 30. This is going to be great. My, my path is completely laid out before me. I'm on easy street now. Leader, I was not. <laughs> so, so what eventually happened after that was, yeah, he took that 380,000-word word novel and you know, it's like he started shopping it around and Tor asked to see it and then they looked at it and they sat on it for like three or four years before Whoa. finally saying, yeah, we really like it, but no, we're not going to go with that. So, so I was like, I remember what you were telling me is that the, the editor he submitted it to really liked it and he just couldn't get his team yeah. on board or something. So yeah, was... that, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm not in this. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in the same position that you guys are, so I'm not going to, like, you know, name names or anything like that, because they're still... I mean, he tried. Don't burn yet, but <laughs> he did try. He tried for years, and eventually they were just like, no, there were just way too many arguments going on about it, because it was like, 
weird and strange and also contemporary fantasy, but it was the 90s at the time, so I guess the market might have been bigger. But eventually after that, that didn't work out, so I found myself eventually without an agent and in the querying trenches again, and I kind of just stayed there writing one book after another until about like 2015 or 2016. So yeah, basically I managed to get an agent in the 90s and then lost that agent in the 90s and then spent like the next 15 or so years just querying and writing like six or seven books and collecting about four or five, no, maybe 600 rejections. Yeah, I think 600. It was a lot of rejections anyway. It's like, yeah, and I just <laughs> I just kept going and going and going. And I'm I, watching Ronnie's just, face. <laughs> I just told myself, it's like, okay, I know that I am made of flesh and bone, and I know that this is a wall, but if I treat my head like a drop of water, and I just keep banging it against that wall, eventually, on a millennial scale of time, I will eventually break through that wall, if I just keep doing this. So I did, and then, you know, 2015, 2016, I eventually got another bite on a cyberpunk novel, I'd actually told myself at the time, it's like, okay, I've been at this for a while and I've been making a pretty good gig as just a freelance writer. So maybe if this last novel doesn't work out, then I'm just gonna call it quits and say, okay, I'll just stick with the freelance writing from now. So this is my last novel. I'm gonna write everything that I want in it and I'm just gonna put it out and I'm not gonna care. And an agent finally said, okay, I like this book. Let's you know try and get it published. It took another you know year and a half or so before somebody finally came around and said, yeah, we want to publish this book. And exactly the same way as I was with my first age, I was like, yes, I finally got a book published. This is it. My path is clear. It's like Easy Street is finally opening for me a second time. But this time it's totally going to work out. I've got a really good feeling about this. And then they told me, so we're going to publish this in 2020. And I'm like, yes, 2020. That sounds like a great year. And, it's like, and we're going to make it a summer publication. I'm like, yes, it's going to be a beach read in 2020. This is fantastic. I am set. And then 2020 rolled around. And in January, we had a little thing called the global pandemic. So all of a sudden, everything was closed, including the bookstores. And my publishers were like, so your book launch is going to be when bookstores aren't actually open. So how about if we just do uh, an ebook in the summer and maybe the pandemic will be over by the winter and we'll like, you know, launch the actual physical book then. So I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, really, how long can a pandemic last? Like, you know, eight, nine weeks? But like, surely it's not going to go on that long. Reader, it went on that long. So shouldn't have asked so yeah exactly so yeah summer rolled around and the ebook came out because oh. all the bookstores were closed and then winter came along and the physical book came out but it didn't matter because most of the bookstores were still closed and so they were like well you know sorry man we like you know tried doing what we could but like the pandemic kind of just happened so you know my book kind of just launched itself and did a triple lindy and went straight into the toilet and just did this rapid spiral with the flush sound effect and i kind of just like wave you know it's like bye bye you know it's like we had a good run didn't we i'm sorry that i'm laughing at this but i still i love the way you tell it i, I laugh every day i laugh every five minutes when i think about it. i i have to laugh because otherwise it's just like Oh my god! And the suicidal tendencies. So it's like, yeah, I, I, I gotta laugh. How am I not supposed to feel bad? By the we way, we must, we, we, we must laugh because the wood chipper is the alternative, and we do not want the wood chipper. So 
which is more of a growlery joke, but like, hey, growlery guys, how are you? I told you my voice sounded like a chipmunk, didn't I? Wayne, I love your voice, and and uh, I and I love your humor in the face of the abyss. It has is always impressed yeah, me enormously. My, my, yeah, my humor is. It's a coping abyss. mechanism, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's it. It's like yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh my god. Yeah. So, so now my story is, is that I am still continuing to write books and giving them to, to my agent. And, you know, God bless you her. You kind of have and, to after that. And she is sending them out and I continue to experience many near misses where the editors are always like, we love the writing, it's so engaging, it's so funny, but this book isn't quite for us, but please submit the next one. And I keep doing that. So, you know, I'm basically at wall 2.0 where my forehead continues to bang against it. And, you know, it's like, I think I may be close to making another dent, but I don't know. I'm, I'm writing a new novel. I'm using first person point of view for the first time because some people have said, and I quote, it's voicey as fuck. So, like, we'll see whether that makes a difference. It is. They, yeah, they're very voicey. Yeah. So that, that's, that's my long, slow, terrible, you don't want to be me story. And you know, if I had to give advice to anybody out there, it's if it is at all under your control, try not to launch during a global pandemic. It does not turn out well for you. Jesus Christ, and I'm not even Christian. No. That's the perfect time to say Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, right? So yeah. mental health advice, guys? How do you guys yeah. manage that? <laughs> can, can we broach that subject? Is that dangerous? Um, regular, oh, no, we can. regular alteration of state of consciousness. <laughs> That's a yeah. good way to say it. Wow, yes. it's legal, man. Yeah. It's legal up there. Yeah, that, that, yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry, that, you're not that's Canadian. Oh, thing, yeah. okay. Uh, I think because we all talk in groundlery that Wayne and I, yeah, definitely partake in. Uh, let, yeah, let's, mental health assistance. I guess mental assistance. Psychonauts, <laughs> and leave it at that. Yeah, we're, we're psychonauts. Yeah. That's what we are. Psych yes, we're nautically exploring the psyche. Yes. That is what we do. Sure, let's go with that. Um, also, yeah. angry weightlifting in my case that does actually oh. help. Yeah. Oh, I'm in that team. I'm in that team. Yeah. They they actually I was at Imperial College London UK. Uh, sorry, I'm a fitness nerd, and you you guys know this because like me and Clay's at times will go off in growlery and talk about this. I but, learned um, so much from you guys too. It's very they, educational. They have shown that long term weight training can help only just because how much it affects cortisol, which does exacerbate mm. when you guys if you have depression like we do or um, suicidal tendencies, mm. just just stressors of all kind. It's not obviously the cure. Um, unfortunately, the cure right now does seem to be magic mushrooms. I mean, that's backed up by science. Six months of micro-dosing. Um, and it way knew, like, this was going to get here somehow if I was on this channel. Just, just to, like, save my own skin, I'm going to have to say that the podcast does not officially endorse substances yeah. illegal or otherwise. Not, not, not officially, quote-unquote. Yeah. And I've been public about this on Twitter. I do struggle yeah. with very, very bad depression. Um, and... I just Googled and researched a lot of this. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying I do or we endorse it. Just, yeah. No, that's fine. No, I mean, we, we've talked about it loads because, like, the, the thing for me has always been anxiety. And, I, like, I hate that term anxiety because anxiety makes me think, like, oh, if I have to give a speech to some people who are not very interested, that would make me anxious, right? To me, that's anxiety. But then, like, the level that I experience it is like right, I wake up right. and I think the fucking world is ending and everyone's going to leave yeah. me and it right then that's a whole nother level it's like if we only had one word for depression and that word was right. oh I feel a bit sad like it would just not cover what that what you're experiencing but anyway yeah I've tried my share of things drugs don't work for me two of them have made me extremely ill one of them <laughs> um 
don't do drugs if you can't cope with them, kids. Even legal yeah. ones. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the scary part, though, right? Like you don't know yeah. how it's going to affect your neurochemistry. It's why, like I, I did say, in, with assisted, yeah. um, the best way it works so far is with you know colleges with doctors. Who... Yeah, yeah. Caveat that one of my, one of mine was a prescription, and it it just it was the yeah. the beta blockers that kind of tanked my heart oh, rate and sent me to hospital, wow. and the other one was. Uh, okay. I think by the time I ended up in ER, my resting heart rate was 36 Whoa. beats a minute and dropping. And it just felt like having a heart attack. In, s- in slow motion. So, yeah. Yeah, holy crap. Yeah, it felt like a heart attack in slow motion. So I can't take those for anxiety. I can't take uh, citalopram. I may or may not, I'm not admitting this on air, have tried something that I shouldn't have done, which made me very sick. And thankfully, uh. we have doctors in our Discord who gave me some advice. Otherwise, alcohol and exercise, my drugs of choice. Yes. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think I remember this moment now. Yeah, this this is all starting to sound unpleasantly familiar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Publishing makes you do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong takeaway. Do we take know away. anyone that doesn't have like an unhealthy, like everyone I know who is a writer has some kind of problem. I won't say problem. Has some kind of relationship with alcohol or other substances no but that's because and th- there was a famous author who oh god i'm forgetting who though but he talked about this that the arts usually attract people who are neurodivergent or suffer from mental illness on a higher percentage that we, i don't know if there's a reason why maybe it is because non-typical thinking you might gravitate towards the art already and then obviously how many people go undiagnosed uh, mental illness is getting worse and there's obviously world contributing factors to that too i mean look at our timeline right Everything that can go wrong in the world seems to be finding ways to go wrong. And I think art might be the reprieve for that. So you might have a higher concentration of people like that in there because it's the one place where logically you have some control with what you're making, creating, saying, how you get it out there, process, and it kind of is a therapy. Like I know for me, writing literally saved my life and then a writer also saved my life. So I have a very... If healthy is the actual right word, but I have a very strong attachment to, to creating. Yeah, the but then publishing is different from writing, isn't it? So writing saves your life and publishing pushes you over the edge again. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, God, how do I phrase this so I don't get canceled tomorrow? I, I've never struggled too much indie publishing. Everything's in your control. Everything's in your control. Well, I think also the transparency. Like if a book doesn't work, I know it could have been like, all right, I didn't have the resources to market and I can feel bad about it. But you know, like some, some authors come in a lot later in indie publishing with what they call war chest. They're retired, they're wealthy, they can invest. Um, and this isn't a criticism, but if I, I started when I was in my early twenties, like you have like no money when you're 20. So I had to do mine from grassroots scratch and build it up. So my early books didn't blow up. I kind of felt bad about myself, but I was also like, okay, well, I didn't have the money. And then slowly things actually started working out and I could see the control and I could see the sales and the money coming in. I knew how much I was going to get in two months. So I could portion a part of it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, if I keep writing these books and I portion like 20% of every month's income back into ads or building my mailing list, it will scale up. Maybe not as much as I'd like and it would. And that's kind of what happened. Traditional is really hard for me to adjust with after like seven years of indie because nothing's transparent like you and i are still waiting on our royalty reports from um sometime someday (laughs) yeah yeah wayne goes like the other way i think and he's always telling me he prefers to believe that everything in trad is in his control oh yeah i i 100 percent blame myself and just kind of wallow in existential (laughs) crippling despair about the whole I, I, it's because the book sucked, that's all. So if I just oh, wrote a book Jesus, that didn't man. suck, then Come it'll be fine. Because that way I can at least tell myself oh. the reason that this failed is something that I can change. If I say, it's like, oh no, your book was good, it just didn't get picked up for reasons, then I'm like, well, what am I even doing this for? So I'm just going to blame myself until, you know, 
something else happens. And it's like, wow. that's, yeah, I, I'd, I'd rather deal with the crippling existential despair of you failed, but you can do better, as opposed to the crippling existential despair of this had absolutely nothing to do with you, and therefore you can do nothing about it. What's going to happen to the listeners is what I'm worried about after this episode now. I mean, yeah. it's bleak, right? But I guess I guess it's something I've been thinking My about. My story wasn't. <laughs> but I, but I, I laugh at it, though. You see, it's like I, I can smile about it now. You know, it's like after, you know, it's like years of recovery. So. Everybody's got bleakness somewhere in there. And I, I think... Exactly. <laughs> it's one Some of, the... of us are just more outward about it than others, like this guy. So just... <laughs> I was just thinking about it, like, in terms of, you know... Every time, sometimes I read reviews. Re reviewers are like, oh, "If the author just like put in a little bit more effort here," and I always think, "Like, do you not know? Like, they don't know." But most no, people are writing under crap circumstances, like just really yeah. grueling mental, yeah. financial, whatever circumstances. We can't do better. And familial, like, I mean, if we want to get dark, I, you you guys know my personal family history and upbringing. But like, that, that yeah. might be too dark for the show. Yeah. But like, yeah, there's some shit circumstances in writers' lives. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And then on top of all that, there's the enormous pressure to get everything right. And, and that kind of brings me to something that Wayne had, had suggested talking about, which is the landmine of diaspora writers, which is all three of us writing mm. cultural stuff in quotes and how that can go sideways both ways from Western readers wanting authenticity and people back home who think you will never get it right. Because that causes me a lot of stress and anxiety. I don't know how you guys feel about it or what that landscape's like, especially in social media where we're constantly seeing all sides of the fence and all sides of the fence hate us. Uh, that's the wrong way to phrase it, but you know yeah. what I mean. Oh, absolutely. Do you want to go start, Wayne, or do you want me to just go? Mm, uh, I, I guess I could at least start with one thing, which is that like, I, I did want to point out for everybody here that if you are diaspora and you're telling diaspora stories, your writing is going to be like you. It's going to be mixed, it won't fit in, and nobody is going to know where to put it. And you just have to deal with that if those are the kinds of stories that you want to tell. It's Amen. Like that, that's, that's the yeah. harsh reality of it, so. I, I got very fortunate with the first binding in that, at least as far as I've seen, I haven't had South Asian hate. Uh, my biggest advocates have been South Asian readers and reviewers. Uh, weirdly, I've had Western and like, I don't want to say white necessarily, but there was one who was like criticizing my lack of South Asian-ness in this. And I kind of want, I did want to pop off on social media. Like my parents were fresh off the boat in America and raised me South Asian. Like my first language is plural. We're all South Asian languages. I didn't learn English or anything American until I was in Montessori, which is like a preschool before preschool. Oh, yeah. I know and I had to learn English there. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was watching Bollywood movies because my dad personal story and was actually in Bollywood for a little while and that was like his big aspiration he didn't make it I guess that's how he relives like the almost I almost made it thing and it was all Bollywood movies all the time like that's what I grew up watching until like um, he finally let someone else use a TV and then it was like western stories like Power Rangers and Wishbone and, and Fable stuff um, and mythology but linguistically like I grew up very South Asian cuisine like we never ate out the first time I ate out ever ever was like 1998 and our neighborhood got a subway like, so I have an emotional attachment with Subway because that was the very first time I ever ate out. <clears throat> I would bring, like, worse. Well, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm not complaining. Yeah. I'm just like, it is weird to see the the hate that I've gotten from non-South Asians telling me about, like, the lack of South Asianness in the story. But it's like what you talked about. At the same time, I'm also writing something very in the middle. Like, people don't know the, col the colonization history of South Asia because it's been colonized by a lot of different empires and cultures. And my story specifically starts off in a place called Itania, which is an analog amalgamation of Spain and Italy that's closer to Portugal. 
the Portuguese conquered parts of South Asia. They brought Catholicism there. Um, Goa, which was like as a colony, it was a Portuguese colony, and I don't think people realize that. Like one of the places that has a lot of South Asian influences now in return is Goa. There's like there's Catholic South Asians there. It, it's a very interesting thing. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you, you've totally found. I was just agreeing with you that there's a lot of that in Hong Kong as well because it was just owned by Britain for so long. Um, and I'm all over the place. Like I went to they call it a local school in Hong Kong when I was about kindergarten mm-hmm. age and learned Chinese and was there. And then we moved back to the States and we moved back without my mother because she was still working. I lost all the Chinese. We moved mm-hmm. back later and I went to high school in Hong Kong and then now I live here. So I haven't written a story set in Hong Kong yet. Like I'm writing one now and I'm awaiting, like I, I'm terrified of the backlash. You know, I watch the arguments between diaspora and non-diaspora people on Twitter, and I oh, think God, this yeah. is going to be so bad. My whole plan Fuck. for that is just to turn off Twitter when this book comes out, honestly. Oh, yeah. Just... Yeah, Twitter's so toxic. Yeah. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but it is. No, it is. We, we, we all know it is. We're all terrified of Twitter, and it, it's so bad. It's like everyone is so oh, scared I don't have of this Reddit. social media. It's like it gets progressively worse. Like I think the more you get into these microcosms or microcosms where you can create like group homophily, it just concentrates and it gets worse. Cause like I don't have Reddit, but I have some loose idea of how it works, but I know you can build like sub subreddits, right? There's like a sub community of a sub community, sub community. And that's only ever going to lead to like an exacerbated group think. And that's never good in any kind of community. I mean, it's already bad enough in publishing, and we've seen this, and we've talked about it personally and stuff. And it just it just magnifies, like, intensity of one opinion. And that's not how writing works, because our whole thing is... We've talked about this with commerciality. We're supposed to first try to be as accessible as we can, if that's what you want to, to sell. Um, and that also means accessibility of thought and, like, experiences in your books. Like, I tackle societal hierarchy in my book, but it's through the lens of casteism, because that's a real problem in South Asia, still to this day. I know people in my life who want their kids to marry certain people of certain castes, and it's horrible. But it's still it's quietly still talked about. Colorism. But that boils down to it's a kind of bigotry and prejudice to talk about. But my entire book has these, these themes showing up in it, but they're accessible. I think Americans will realize that people in the West will still get, regardless of it not being here in terms of casteism, maybe it's still kind of prejudice, and we understand prejudice. I do think we get scrutinized more as well. <laughs> I mean, Book Eaters is set in Britain, and it's very kind of tribute to Britain book. I remember one person, you know, it's a positive review and they'd written like, my only complaint is this, the author clearly doesn't know how people talk here because no one in this country says crikey. And I read that and I thought, crikey, who's she been talking to? (laughs) 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 And it's funny because every single time I meet someone that says crikey now in this country, I think about that fucking review. Oh, absolutely. And, And part of me thinks like, but if my name was John Smith, would they have said that? Or would they have questioned that like, I know Oh, this country. Yeah. I, like, I've lived here 18 years, for God's sake. Anyway, yeah, I'm all over the place no, with this interview. <laughs> val- no, but this is valid. You're, you're, you're absolutely right, though. You're, you're right. It's like once they see that name, certain assumptions are going to come in. And I mean, it's like it's it, like it's it's one of those things that I you know wrestle with because it's like it totally gets confused with me living in North America, where it's like, you know, Santos, Spanish, but the only reason it's Santos is because of the Spanish colonial overlords. So you know, the descent in the Philippines is actually more like Southeast Asian Pacific Islander, but Santos just conjures up all kinds of like, you know, automatically wrong assumptions about, you know, where my familiarity is supposed to be, because like, no, I'm not from Mexico or Central America or any of those other places. I'm from Southeast Asia. And they're like, oh, okay, so what do you know about the Philippines? And like, 
not as much as somebody that was actually born there and lives there because I grew up in Canada. So sorry, it's like, I can't, you know, actually go super in depth about that either. Well, I mean, I guess I can now because I actually have spent more time in the Philippines. But um, one of the things I actually find fascinating about all this is the expectation when you're writing diaspora literature that the West has certain tour guide expectations. They yeah. think that uh, they think that you know it's like if you're writing this and you're diaspora, you're going to like make it more quote unquote accessible to them. Yes. And you're going yeah. to explain this stuff like a tour guide going is like they want eat pray uh, love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like they they want you to explain the terminology. They want you to explain the customs. They they want you to you know it's like put them on like, you know, it's a small world after all, and just oh, give yeah. them like, you know, this quick TV dinner version that they can like, you know, rapidly digest and feel like they've, you know, been someplace. That is something experience. I got. And it ticked yeah. me off the way you talked about Sunday, because I realized um, somebody wanted my, my novel to be like a monolith of just South Asia. And the whole reason I wrote it was to explain that South Asia at no point was ever a monolith because the amount of languages spoken there, the cultures that came out of there, the religions, like it stems out of both the Proto-Indo-European and Indo-Iranian culture first. And then South Asia actually has the second oldest genome where there's people still descended from the original Africans there. It's two different cultures that over time sort of homogenized, sort of didn't, but you have Vedic epics out of there and then hinduism jainism buddhism so many different religions but it was also the heart of the silk road everybody passed through there like south asia is not one like anything food culture the amount of microclimates there like it has jungles to freezing parts of the himalayas you have beautiful beaches like it, it it's it's literally a world that's why it's called a subcontinent and like it also was it's everyone's traded through it everybody slept with the south asian at one point in history sorry like it's it's true this is why like i had to do it like the story of south asia is a silk road story and someone was like why isn't this just set like and i guess what they they wanted of india and i'm like because that's not a self-contained area it never has been it's so, stupid it's so funny God. when uh, everything everywhere all at once is winning mm. oscars and i have like lots of middle-aged kind of british poets on my facebook feed and like some of them really loved it but quite a few of them really didn't like it and they were all like oh it just doesn't make any sense and this that and the other and i commented on one other person i said well it probably won't make sense to you because it's like a diaspora film it makes sense to people who are kind of which is a large proportion of people displaced asians right it makes sense mm -hmm. on that level and it was written for them so it's not written for you and this guy he was like no no that's not the case that, that i don't just understand it i like asian cinema and i was like what do you mean you like Asian cinema, like, <laughs> do, like, do you like Japanese cinema? Do you uh, like what you've seen Squid Games? So you, yeah. what does that have to do? With... <laughs> oh, Squid Games. Yeah. yeah, you, you know, it's like chop chopsticks. You know, chopsticks. He saw big trouble in Little China. Yeah, that doesn't mean yeah. you'll, you'll enjoy a diaspora film for which you were not the audience because you, I don't know. You saw Squid Games. When, it, when it's sunny outside, <laughs> when it's when it's sunny outside, I wear a pointy hat. So don't tell me that I don't like Asian. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> No, but it's like it's stuff we all have to deal with being a diaspora author we're both you know too west for back home and we're too whatever color you want to identify as for the west which means we're going to get shit from every side for things that might not even have to do with the story going back to what you said if someone just didn't like it at the end um there's always like these weird qualifiers people put in and we've all seen that kind of stuff wayne i, I remember from your maria mackling books novellas i think they're novellas aren't they um they're yeah, a lot of fun but you kind of took that myth and ran wild with it. Did you ever kind of, I don't know, did you worry about that? Because I worried about it so much, playing with myths and gods and things like that in, in my Hong Kong book. But I don't know if you, you gave that much thought. Oh, I mean, you know, like I said, I typically suffer from, you know, crippling existential despair. So okay. there's no <laughs> that I wasn't going to worry about getting that wrong. But 
thanks to the crippling existential despair, I also just assumed I'm going to get this wrong and nobody is going to be happy with it. So I may as well just go fuck it and just let the chips fall where they may, because nobody is going to be happy and I just have to deal with that regardless. So I may as well like, you know, make everybody unhappy in a way where I did it my way. <laughs> did you talk to family? I like yeah. that. Did you talk to family about it? Because I, I remember quizzing my... No, oh no, 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 no. That, that, definitely not talking to family because then you know it's like you're getting like the direct verbal criticism about how you fucked it up. So it's like, yeah, I mean, Mar Maria Macaling is you know kind of a you know a, a big folklore deal in the Philippines. She's got her own mountain and you know just you know it's like lots of legends surrounding her. So which also means that it's pretty open to like broad interpretation. There are lots of different stories about her. I just happened to pick the one where it turned out that she had like you know three romantic interests and two of them were big deals and one of them was just like you know a farmer fisherman type so the other two guys didn't like that and like you know killed the poor bastard off just so that they would have a better shot at her i that particular storyline kind of resonated with me and i you know it's like picked it up and ran with it and just turned it into a stupid fun novella that ends up with like you know a high-speed car chasing like downtown toronto because that's just how I roll. But um, yeah, I mean, with, with something like that, it's like ev everybody is going to be angry with the way you've done it. So all you can really do is just decide what's pleasing to you and, you know, and, you know, what kind of you know, other reader, I guess you want to write for, and then just let go, I'm doing it for you guys and for me a little bit. And everybody, everybody else can just go and like, you know, yeet into the sun. I, or whatever. I, I tried so. questioning my mother about some specific aspects of ghost lore in, in like, Hong Kong and and she kept giving me con conflicting answers. I was like, so are there not any set rules to this? And she just gave me this look and she was like, it's fiction. Can't you just make it up? And <laughs> I was trying to explain to her like some of the politics Ooh. surrounding that on Twitter and how people, mm. you know, don't see it that way. And she was like, what is wrong with all these people? And it just made me laugh because yeah, it's funny. Like if I was writing a book it's about a Zeus, question. I would not feel bad. I would be like. Oh, here's my version of Zeus. He's like an emo kid, and this is going to be my '90s retelling of Zeus, right? And and I wouldn't feel weird about doing that because people just <laughs> mess with Greek myths, whether they should or not. But I don't feel like any oh, freedom when it comes to Chinese mythology at all. I, you feel that mm -hmm. pressure to be historical or accurate, even when the myths themselves are completely all over the place. You know what that might be due to, though. It might be because of how prolifically western-ish associated myths have been retold so much we've kind of accepted that but th and this is a thing with certain kinds of reviewers who if their introduction to a poc fantasy is through your book they inherently want i guess the accurateness so they can like learn something because in a lot of times it's them who criticize it not being as accurate sometimes it's not the you know people back home it's reviewers here in the west who are like oh well like i google this and it's not as accurate as it should be or blah 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 because they want that but it also goes to the problem that wayne talked about that like it's not as accessible if you do it that way necessarily all the time like they want eat pray love but they also want it to be accurate and that leaves you like well what do you do so you have to go to wayne's thing which is fuck it i'm gonna do what i yeah. want i mean it, it is it, it is just part of that tour guide aspect where if you say yeah. it's like okay here is like you know the canon the traditional folklore and i'm going to go off on a curveball on that but they're like but wait unlike you know greek mythology or norris mythology i am not intimately familiar with this so i don't want you taking liberties with it because i want you to explain it to me as it is mm -hmm. traditionally and it's like well that that's not fair and they're like yeah but i'm not familiar with it so 
give me the pure stuff. You know, it's like don't 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 go off on your own path yet because I don't know what the established path is, and I expect you to define that for me now. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's an unpleasant expectation that you've suddenly yeah. dropped on my shoulders. Write what you want to write, but write it for us yeah. the way we want. Yeah, exactly. So, and in my that's case, just, secondary yeah, world. In my case, just trash the Spanish a lot. So. <laughs> But I'm allowed to do that because, you know, it's like, yeah, century of colonialism, so it's like, you know, okay. All of my heritage is, is British oppressed or British hating, yeah. which is the Chinese, yeah. the Scottish, and yeah. um, the Choctaw side. And that's my reasoning for having broken the hearts of three different English men, one for each of the ancestors. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. There we go, yeah. I just, I wrote my novels, Secondary yeah. World, because I wanted, oh, I, I, for me, it was just like, I wanted what Tolkien did. Like, we've talked about this, where he just went to recreate, honestly, the German myths. And he went back to Beowulf and um, uh, Disring de Nibelung, which is like a Danish or Finnish play, I always forget. It's about the Ring of Power. Um, and he just retold them and wanted to go pre-Arthurian. And he's like, he did it in a secondary world, and it was beautiful. And I was like, I want to do that with the South Asian stuff, so I don't have the onus of, here's your like authentic Indian experience. Like It's like, no, it's Indianish. it will feel that, and I'll tackle South Asian subjects and languages, and all myth notes will be there, but it's also new. But familiar. Yeah, the first time I read Beowulf, I was, uh, I, you know, that was my first encounter with like, oh wow, Tolkien really did just lift the ending of Beowulf and put it in The Hobbit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was still good. I still liked it. it was, yeah. uh, he, he was a formative read and I will love Tolkien until the day I die. But I was oh, like, same. Okay, Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a tribute. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing too, right? He wasn't like originally a writer. He was a, a language nerd and through language, like became a lover of mythology. And he just retold... I guess, because I, I, I don't know who posited this theory, but it was really well done. And it, I guess it's sort of diaspora in that he got tired of the Arthurian myths defining Britain because it's older than that. And so many other people, again, have been through there. And he was like, well, what's like a new mythical story for like Britain? And so he went pre-Arthurian, which was um, Beowulf in the German epics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he it did worked. actually. Yeah. He created the whole uh, in a very big part of the English fantasy landscape that we've inherited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys talk really fast. That was quite funny, though. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. We actually do. Wow. I need to slow down. I've, you're not the first no, person it's who good. said that. No, no, no. It was good. It's just, this is a, totally like a lack of planning where I was like, yeah, we had rapid fire conversation and then suddenly we're all like really quiet. <laughs> but it's, it was good. It was all over the place. And yeah, I am for real going to turn off Twitter when um, my Hong Kong book comes out because I just, I, I've thought about it so much and it's so, so stressful. That whole scene. Oh, they're going to pick on you. They're totally gonna pick on you yeah yeah but then we also have yeah, yeah but you have always a too, mob like... with pitchforks just looking for a direction to go in so. but it is so it's so vitriolic out there i remember someone saying um you know it was very different you were writing 50 years ago and you kind of wrote your book and you sent it off and you maybe saw some reviews in a paper or you maybe <laughs> heard a few things or got letters mm -hmm. but now we are so plugged in uh, you know, you get Google alerts for your you books, tagged you get tagged them. and stuff, you get sh you get sent DMs by people who expect you to be available, but also want you to not be in reader spaces at the same time. And they want, they want authors to be available, like reviewers and readers like it, they like feeling like you were there, so they want you to be there except when they don't. And right. it's like, you're sending mixed messages, publishers want you to be in there, yeah, exactly. they want you to interact as well. Um, and then just combined with that, I feel like we we live in this review culture where people have either chosen to do this or we have lost the ability to say I don't like a book without a moral judgment attached. I know we've talked about this in Discord, but it, it just yes. feels like like so often reviews, are, you know, someone will read a big book and think, oh, I don't like this, but I don't want to lose followers. So I'm going to say I don't like this because it's problematic. That. 
music and it's very personal and it's very targeted and oh my god this is yeah. gonna be such a dodgy episode i'm so sorry <laughs> uh, i'm talking a big generalities no but it's like it's stuff we all have to deal with it, it does because the thing is it's also not unilaterally applied like yeah well like because of the internet though there's no instant like thought repercussion because you can just fling it out there before you can even realize hey is this like the right thing to do or should i actually say this and where are repercussions on the internet people use sock puppets um we've talked about i've been getting harassed through sock puppet accounts and stuff for a while and death threats i remember yeah and death threats see it feels weird to talk about i feel like i shouldn't be talking about my emotional responses to those kinds of reviews but it's like at the same time it's like it is a huge part of author life, and I kind of feel like we're, we're reaching this point where there, there's a really toxic relationship between authors and reviewers. It's kind of very slowly getting worse at the moment. It feels like that anyway. I don't know. Well, look at Twitter with actors, right? Kelly, was it Kelly Marie Tran? I am so sorry if I got her name wrong. She was one of the Star Wars actresses. That was awful. She was, she was bullied oh, yeah, off of bad. Twitter. Tom Holland, this just recently came out, He's I, and it was surprising because I saw it yesterday or two days ago where he announced he was sober, and I didn't know what context they meant it in now because it's broadly termed, and it turns out it was actually from social media um, because of all the Spider-Man attention, and I guess he also got weird messages. I don't know how far it got, but, like, you know, there are people who are like, I'm a Tobey Maguire supremacist, or um, what? who's the the second gentleman who played Andrew him? Garfield. Uh, Andrew Garfield. He actually weirdly started getting comments that, like, about that stuff and it's like why would you send it to him though like for him it's just a role he's do you know he got the role of his life um it was a studio decision and it's happening now we see it with uh liam's hemsworth and the the witcher um like i've seen shit where he's getting it but it's like you know that guy didn't kick henry cavill out like you can get mad at studios and whatever else you want but like it gets out of hand and people get hurt or their mental health gets hurt and that's a huge wayne and i obviously talked about suicidal tendency and crazy people get harassed and yeah i i mean for me it's you know being a gen xer i guess it's definitely an old man yelling at clouds moment but i really wish that we could actually you know roll back the time machine and go back to a time where the audience did not automatically expect and demand instant access to the artists because it did not happen until the 21st century, and now that it's here, everybody kind of just takes it for granted where, yes, I'm going to have access to the artists, and I'm going to be able to, like, you know, tell them whatever I want, and if they don't listen to me, and if they don't acknowledge me, then I'm actually going to get mad about that. And it wasn't always like that, and I'm just, like, it would be nice to go back to that where it's just, like, the artists are yeah. there doing their own thing yeah. as opposed to, like, I said something to them, and they didn't reply to me, and now I'm very, very angry about that, so... Like, that's just nuts. Yeah, I'm so careful online because, like, I've become yeah. the blandest person ever. I've adopted the Brand Brandon Sanderson kind of facade because yeah, I know that if I start a dog pile, I can't cope with it. Like, I can't cope with, like, someone in, in at a red light behind me getting upset because I started my car too late, right? Like, this, that stresses me out. There's this whole thing on Twitter, the whole, like, you make someone mad and then they demand apologies over and over. And that just, rem that's, like... That reminds me of unpleasant family behavior from my childhood, oh, which yeah. is just like, right? Everyone who's got Asian parents knows this. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the circle of apology that goes on and on and on. Um, and I don't know whether mm. people on Twitter are learning that at home and bringing it to us or we're just being triggered by it. But fucking hell, I, I can't do that. Yeah. So first on a I... dog pile, I'm gone. <laughs> I, I chose the opposite route. I've just turned my entire brand into shit posting or the extreme of... Like, I just drop entire mythology threads, which I should probably be putting on YouTube, but, like, ten pages of, here, here's something you should learn. You, Everything else is just shit posting anyways, or it's just dog piles, and I'm sick of it. Like, I'm going to learn you something. But I suppose we should talk about, like, there is a positive to this. Like, I know 
my career has been built literally by loving online random strangers who have which i guess is most readers but um that i've interacted with like i i one of my earliest fans for my grave report series which they should not have been reading because they were like 13 but whatever really loved it and for their birthday i was like you know what fuck this kid really loves my series i sent them like an entire fbi evidence bag with the book inside signed bookmarks and like fbi evidence because this there's an fbi agent character in it and now they're like the biggest diehard fan ever and it was just that one little interaction that made this person's life and because of that like i now have a connection it's like wow this is beautiful and i have fans like that no that's and, and true with there... Tales of tremaine oh yeah. go ahead no no i was just gonna say art. that same same thing i think you meet the individual reader like there are people who are looking for the epilogue and i would just send it to them quietly or who wanted you know they wanted a signed edition and they missed out so i can send them book plates yeah yeah you can you can only do that on social media and that part Mm -hmm. of it is really cool and also as much as i complain about it there are times when twitter is really really effective at holding people accountable oh that too (laughs) some of the books that have been cancelled fucking deserved it right like i know that's awful to say and maybe it wasn't done with kindness Mm. or nuance but I was thinking about like that memoir lady, but anyway. Was this? So, I'm gonna get in trouble for probably guessing, but is it American Dirt or? Oh no no, you won't get in trouble. It's I can't remember her name now. That's okay. that's why I haven't named her. But it was basically a woman, a British lady who got on Twitter and she was like, "Oh, reviewers are leaving bad reviews where they they are making up quotes that aren't oh, in my book. Everyone, please help right. me!" Right, okay. and she, this went viral because everyone felt sorry for her, and then people read her Whoa. book and were like. But they didn't make up those quotes. That's literally in your oh, book. You literally said that. Yeah. And then Whoa. and then like her publisher dropped her and all the stuff. And it's like, but if you hadn't gone on Twitter to sick people against reviewers for what was literally in your book and they were actually right, then you probably wouldn't have lost everything. So she totally did that to herself. That wigs me out though. Well here's the thing. We talked about getting judged and stuff, so my cab driver thriller has racist comments, but they're comments that I have received. In this case, because it's a memoir, it's like her remembering things that she thought about people where it's like, ooh, so that's a bit different. But yeah, no, I understand the worry as well. Yeah. Supercharged oh. episode of Publishing yeah. Radio. Viral or we're all canceled. It's well, Scott's way, the Asians come out to play, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. That was good. I just shouldn't have drank something, but that was good. Yeah, that's no, also the title of probably some rated R film or rated X. Yeah, yeah it absolutely is. Uh, I'm totally out of questions, and but I had a good time just talking shit and saying hello to you guys. So feel free to book, plug your books, both of you, if you want. I know I've been all over the place today. Sorry. I rely on Scott too much to drive episodes. Which is like super smooth, silky voice. He just thinks of questions so fast and effortlessly. It's crazy. Anyway, sorry, plug your books. My latest book is The First Binding, uh, book one of Tales of Tremaine. Book two will hopefully be coming out next year. That's what I've been told. Don't ask me when exactly because paper shortages and crises in publishing and I get different answers. Oh, where can we find you, Ronnie? These days it is definitely most applicable on Twitter, the platform we just spent a long time complaining about. But or however that... long it continues to exist. That and you can find a way to harass me on my Facebook author page because that's where most of the harassment happens um, in DMs. But I do actually respond to people who are like nice. I actually do take time to answer questions. I have one reviewer that does just ask me mythology questions nonstop in Facebook DMs, and I will answer, especially if you want to talk nerdy mythology stuff. Awesome. Your turn, Wayne. <laughs> okay, well, um, if you're looking for my books, then you can find the Chimera Code as a print book and an ebook at all good bookstores. Um, if you're interested in urban fantasy novellas about Filipino folklore, then you can look for The Difficult Loves of Maria Makaling, which are also available as ebooks or 
you know, print books at all good bookstores, maybe by this point. Um, if you want to reach me on the internet, then probably the best way to do it is either at my website, which is WayneSantos.com, or you can like, you know, bug me on Twitter for however long that continues to exist at, uh, at Wayne P. Santos. Oh, thank you both. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later. Thank you.